0: Matt Boudreaux.
1: Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 282 you're listening to. My guest today is my friend Bjorgvin Benediksen, who's an audio engineer, musician, entrepreneur, and author. He runs the website audioissues.com. He's written a few books, two very popular ones, Step by Step Mixing and Better Mixes in Less Time. And Bjorgvin is originally from Iceland. And he now currently resides in Tucson, Arizona. And he is also a freshly minted U.S. citizen on top of that. So very much looking forward to bringing you my conversation with Bjorgven Benediksen, coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. I got a lot on my mind. So much so, I drank all the coffee in this cup right before I started this. Damn it. That's okay. I'll get more after this is done, so I'll try to make it somewhat brief. Recently, I was going through some hard drives and I was coming across various Pro Tools sessions from eons ago. I've kind of been on that, that track lately of you know restoring Pro Tools sessions, discovering Pro Tools sessions. Anyways, long story short, I came across a Pro Tools session that was clearly a transfer from an ADAT from many years ago. And I realized, oh, this is when I borrowed so-and-so's ADAT, and I was transferring a bunch of ADAT tapes in and you know, trying to get rid of those ADAT tapes and move them into the Pro Tools world. So you couldn't say I was digitizing them because they're already digitized. I was transferring them, migrating them, if you will. So this particular tape was a single tape transfer eight tracks. I opened it and it was nine songs back to back, all in on the Pro Tools timeline. And I quickly realized who it was, what it was, and it was a client that I used to work with a bazillion years ago and haven't seen in a bazillion years. And I thought, wow, I don't know if this is a demo or a record. Guess it it's, you know, that's yet to be seen. And that's up for debate. But point is, is that I listened to it and I was like, oh my gosh, I should reach out to this client. Let them know I have these files. Maybe we should mix this. Maybe we should put it out. So I, I listened to it. I'm I'm, I'm intrigued and I think, okay, now I got to find this person. So what do I do? I go to the first place that I hate going, Facebook. I hate Facebook. I'm so tired of it. So I go on there. Lo and behold, I find the guy and I click on the the profile and I start to try to get a sense of like, okay, where's he at? Okay, he's at this part of California. All right, I'm going to reach out. And then I start to read his timeline. And to my utter shock, I learned that he died two years ago. And I had a lot of mixed feelings about it. I, In a strange way, I wasn't sad, but I was definitely put into this melancholy state where I just felt weird And then I went back and started listening to the music again, and it just put me in a real weird position. I just was like, what am I going to do with this? I don't know his family, if he has any family. And long story short, I I found a music partner of his that I think had a part in this recording. And I just reached out to him cold and said, this is who I am. This is what I've got. Here are some thoughts, some, some ideas. If you were a part of this, I want your input and your opinion because you this is you have the right to this more than I do. So, waiting to hear back. But it just got me in this funk about the death of clients, and I've had a few, and maybe you have too. It's the strangest thing when you are in possession of your clients' audio, and you know, for many, it's they're, they're going to be they're going to be clients that nobody's heard of. And yet, I feel this responsibility that should this stuff see the light of day? Who's to make that decision? Just a weird, weird feeling, and it really stuck with me for like, I don't know, about a day and a half. I was just in a funk about it. Didn't know what to do, so I I don't have an answer yet. I'm waiting to hear back from this uh, guy's musical partner, and I'm hoping that uh, something can come of it. I'll keep you up to date if that changes, but I just wanted to share that. The death of clients and their audio in your possession is just, oh man, it's weird, super weird. Now, if you're more high-profile and you're dealing with more high-profile people, there's a lot more red tape involved as far as you know, lawyers and money and labels and managers and bullshit. And, you know, anyhow, something to think about. Stay in touch with your clients and uh, have a plan if you can for what's to happen in the event of their death. I know that's not something I plan for. I'm just at that age now where people are dying off, and it's uh, it's very sad. So, yeah, that's my death audio story for today. I don't know if I've shared uh, music recommendations with you over the years at this on this podcast. If I have, I've completely forgotten about it. I tend to forget a lot over the years, I have to admit. Not a good sign for my old age, huh? Anyhow, I have a recommendation. You have got to hear the new Fiona Apple record, Fetch the Bolt Cutters. It is such a different sounding record and so cool. Just, I don't know, very intriguing. And it was fascinating to me to see, um, I was reading an article about Lars Ulrich from Metallica, and he was saying that, He discovered the record recently and just sat for hours listening to it over and over again, just examining it. And he was so fascinated by it and intrigued by it. So I share his enthusiasm for the record. And then come to find out today, I had no idea. Former WCA guest Chad Blake from WCA number 200 mixed it. And (laughs) it just blows me out of the water. Chad never ceases to amaze me. This is, I mean, I didn't know he mixed it when I heard it. I was just like drawn in and thought, wow, what is this piece of magic? And to find out that Chad mixed it, it just, it puts me over the top with it. So Fetch the Bolt Cutters from Fiona Apple, mixed by our friend Chad Blake. And what a treat, what a sonic treat. So check it out. Hey, so I'm uh, doing Instagram live a bit these days. I've really gravitated towards that. So if you don't follow Working Class Audio on Instagram, uh, do so and you can catch some of my live interviews here and there. We're doing some giveaways too. Uh, live streaming, man, it's, uh, it is definitely uh, quite popular. And I might do some live streaming over on YouTube and or LinkedIn soon. Many of you who listen to the show know of my love-hate relationship with video. And doing it live kind of takes the pain out. You know, there's no editing. It's just live. And I love that. So, uh, yeah, if you're into that, check me out on Instagram as well as YouTube and uh, LinkedIn, of course. I would love to see you there. And and all these things are great ways to get in on the Q&A part of some of these interviews. So, uh, yeah, check it out. Yeah, live streaming, really taking off these days. All right, thanks for listening. A number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the US, and I just love that whole thing. So, if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out, hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. We can sit down and chat, coffee's in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Björg van Benediksen here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Björgvin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm going to find out some things about you I think that I didn't know that I've never bothered to ask you, just because <laughs> sure. you know you don't ask these questions
0: normally. Let's
1: start with where you grew up.
0: You grew up in Iceland, right? Uh, yeah, I'm born and raised in Iceland. I'm from a small town called Hapnulfjöldur, which is Harbor Bay. Ah, it, it's It's in the... Greater Capital Area of Reykjavik used to be the capital of Iceland, I think, or was planned to be the capital of Iceland. I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Icelandic politics. <laughs> yeah, we'll do Icelandic history lesson <laughs> later. I grew up there mostly. I did go. I did live in the U.S. when I was four, from '89 to '91, when my mom went to graduate school in Minnesota. So I lived in Minneapolis and St. Paul for a while. Then I moved back, and then at the height of the economic crash of 2008. I decided to go to audio school in Madrid, Spain and then I basically emigrated from Iceland at that point I have never actually come back to live in Iceland at at any real point since 2008 so Hmm. I moved to Spain moved to Madrid and during my studies I met a girl she was backpacking and I was studying and we we liked each other (laughs) As, (laughs) (laughs) as these things go and after a while, she moved in. She she bopped around Europe for a while. I wrote a song about it. She came back to Madrid, stayed with me for a few months. Then she went to law school in Tucson, Arizona. I finished up my diploma in audio engineering and moved to Tucson, Arizona, where I have lived ever since.
1: The funny thing about that is, is when, like, if you come up in conversation, oh, my friend Björgvin... Björgvin, what kind of name is that? Oh, he's Icelandic. Oh, (laughs) anyways, he lives in Tucson. What? He lives in Tucson? (laughs) Yeah. It's just, I don't know why that strikes people funny, but it does. It's
0: just the opposite of anything you equate Icelandic to. It's the hot desert border town is not it. (laughs) I know. It's it's like hot
1: and cold. Maybe
0: that's what it is. Yeah.
1: So you went
0: to audio school. Mm -hmm. Why did you choose to do that? I started out doing live sound before I went to audio school I was, I've been in bands since I was 14 15 years old and I went and got a job at a youth center and the youth center I one of my one of my jobs if you can call it that at the youth center was to be like the guy that helps the teenagers put together a rock band and teaches them how to be in a rock band which is a great job to have when you're when you're a teenager yourself. So. <laughs> <laughs> and so but from there I did a workshop in live sound at another youth center that was also a music venue and i got into live sound being a live sound tech and i was a live sound tech for that venue for a few years and then i got a job running live sound both monitor mixing and front of house for a lot of really really big events because i was working for one of the largest sound reinforcement companies in iceland at the time and during that time, I was also working at the youth Center and the, my bosses at the time, they were super encouraging of me to continue learning about audio and things like that. And SAE was a school that a lot of Icelanders went to, especially they went to the London campus or maybe the Dutch campus. However, I had spent some time in Spain Back in 2005, I went to language school in Sevilla and Barcelona for a few months after graduating high school just to sort of not go straight into the workforce because I had no idea what I wanted to do. Mm. And I thought, well, if I'm going to go to audio school, maybe I can kill two birds with one stone and also learn Spanish at the same time. So that's why I chose the Madrid campus. It was the most affordable. Obviously, (laughs) the economic crash wasn't helping affordability of anything at that point, But I had saved up a lot of money from doing live sound, working 14-hour days doing live sound and things of that that nature. And I went to audio school just to sort of, I guess, widen my experience, get some official schooling in it. And it's just such an adventure Mm. deciding to go. I'm just going to go to another country. I'm going to live in another country. I'm going to learn the language again. (laughs) (laughs) And part of it was like, I had learned audio by doing live sound and being in bands and, and record, we recorded our own record when we were like high school kids and the, that sort of, we built our own studio, those sorts of things. So I'd learned a lot about audio. So I wasn't necessarily a beginner when I went to school there, but it was a great opportunity and a great adventure to just completely throw yourself into the deep end and get a diploma in something that may, you you want to dedicate your career to because I've always wanted to work in music and I I never decided that I had any other choice than to work in music in some way. Mm-hmm. And that was just one way of adding quote-unquote credentials. I know that audio school gets a lot of flack because you're not a great engineer just because you have a diploma in engineering right. or, or, or in audio engineering in particular. My brother-in-law Matt has an aerospace engineering degree and works for SpaceX. That degree is a worth a hell of a lot more. <laughs> Yeah, but it does get you at least the basics
1: of signal flow and and the Mm -hmm. equipment used and hopefully troubleshooting. I never went to audio school, but many of my guests have gone to audio school and they're super talented. I have encountered some audio school people that are just knuckleheads. And I think it's just
0: the people. It's Mm -hmm. not
1: necessarily the school per se, although that's a potentially deep rabbit hole to go down.
0: Yeah, I think it's everywhere. I mean, like I also went to the U-, U of A and I went to the business college there, and like there's plenty of douchebags in that place too.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's about the people
0: mm-hmm. and what they do with with the knowledge that they get. What did you get yep. out of SAE? Well, a friendship, a lot of fun. It definitely helped me solidify all the foundational knowledge of audio because when you're working in the industry and you're maybe doing something very, very specific and very particular, mm-hmm. you kind of only know how to do that one thing instead of getting a well-versed foundational knowledge of a little bit of everything, which I think was pretty good overall there. Yeah, I got made a lot of friends, uh, a lot of really f- fun people from all over, Latin America and Spain, for sure. There was a lot of people that came from Mexico and Venezuela and and places in South America that went to Madrid to go to school to learn it. And I even got the opportunity to go down to Guadalajara in Mexico to produce a record with a friend of mine who we went to school together in 2008, and I think I went in 2012 or 13 or something like that. I went and worked with his band in his studio. And if you do stuff and meet people along the way and remember them and keep in touch, you get a lot of opportunities thrown thrown your way.
1: Yeah, I've always, in the podcast, I've always talked about the Tape pop Conference, Potluck Audio Conference. Exactly. That time period that generated so many long term bonds and friendships that to this day I've benefited from. I still am in touch with a lot of those people.
0: Mm -hmm. So, and it's coming sort of full circle in audio school because that's where Audio Issues was born. It was born in SAE as a blog and as kind of a research project at the end of the year. And I basically wrote about audio as a way of basically paying forward what I was learning mm-hmm. and also solidifying the knowledge. Because if you if you can teach something, you, foundationally you know it better than if you just can't teach it to other people. And so Audio Issues kind of was born there. And then now I've actually been told that many audio colleges built in Iceland, in UK, and I think even I have a student that went to Full Sail and he said that the full sale professors are often referred to my materials. So I think that's very, very flattering and slightly ironic at the same time. Wow. Wow. Well, let's so for the people that didn't
1: listen to my monologue and or the intro of the show or read any of the the copy associated with the show and are just jumping in cold, let's talk about audio issues and okay how did that come about? Why did you
0: start a blog? Why did you even create that? I started the blog as a way of writing down what I was learning. I thought I'd do it publicly so people could benefit from it. And at the end of the year, you have to write a 5,000-word paper of some sort as a research project. Many people will just write about the history of the microphone or the multi-track recording or something like that. And I wrote about the feasibility of creating an online business in the music industry and as an example i just created it and said like okay this is how i think this business could potentially work as a content business because i had read the four-hour work week and i was implementing all of tim Ferriss's ideas i was also taking online business classes at the same time so there was their websites back there still are obviously a lot more websites these days offer online business education but there was, a, there was a website back then I took that was teaching you how to find your niche, find your small idea, and things of that nature. And it was teaching you about how to use keywords to get found and what you should write about, what you should focus a business around that could potentially become successful. And the term audio production tips was a term that ranked highly in their sort of niche keyword generator. The first iteration of Audio Issues was audio-production-tips.com. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, glad and you it, changed that. <laughs> yeah, and it was just gross. Like, you could probably go to the Wayback Machine and see how it used to look. It is awful. <laughs> <laughs> a lesson how not to do a website. Yeah, right. But, you know, if I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have gotten this far, you know? So you start with what you can do, and then you improve over time. So I did that, and then Audio Issues was the better-branded name that I thought had a better ring to it. And it was the name of the newsletter that I used to send out monthly or something like that to the subscribers back in the day. And then during the the second beta version or version 2.0 of AudioTipsProductionTips.com, I changed the branding to audio issues. I got my friend to make a logo. I taught myself how to code HTML and CSS to set up a site that I thought looked good. And then I think fast forward to 2011, I finally put the site onto the WordPress platform, which is obviously much more versatile and, and easier to use. So I've kept writing ever since. I just never stopped writing and helping and teaching and, and learning at the same time. Basically everything I learn, I share. For those that don't
1: know anything about audio issues, what's the core of it? What What is it that one can expect from audio issues?
0: Audio Issues, uh, it helps home studio musicians and bedroom producers and project studio engineers, what have you, helps them gain the confidence to finish their mixes so that they can be proud to release their records. That's basically the mission is improving and by teaching them how to do it themselves, how to learn the technical parts of audio production and processing and mostly centered around mixing, but obviously recording music production and songwriting as well as mastering and and some of the audio career business stuff like how to set up the websites and things of that nature so i have a lot of different categories of content on the site i think there's about a thousand blog posts or so on the site that i've that i've done and have gotten contributors i get more contributors now i have a team of writers now which is great so the categories are basically buying equipment setting up your studio, learning to record, mixing the recordings, mastering the mixes, and creating a career.
1: Which takes me to my
0: next question. You've
1: chosen this path that you have this audio background, you've done live sound, you've made records, you've gone to school, you understand the whole thing, but you didn't do the traditional thing that a lot of other audio folks do, which is interesting to me, is that Like you didn't go out and try to lose a bunch of money building a studio (laughs) or be an intern and work your way up the ladder, you know, all the typical traditional ways of doing it. You didn't do any of that. Why is that?
0: Well, I always had the limitation of needing to be location independent because remember I was in Spain and then I was moving here. I went to school here too, so I couldn't. I could do a side job, I could do I could run my own thing on the side while I was going to school. I couldn't get a full-time job. I did get an internship at a studio here way back in 2009 or 10 or something like that that I was involved with for maybe a year or so until I just I didn't like the place anymore so I stopped going. Hmm. We cut our ties. So I always needed to have my own thing and be sort of in control of everything. I was working within these limitations basically. I need to be self-sufficient and I need to be location independent. If those are the cars that you can't give back to the dealer, how do you make your poker hand work, right? Right. So that's basically the only way through that sort of situation is become an entrepreneur. Like learn how to make things work, <laughs> learn how to make a business that becomes profitable and what assets at the time did I have that I could propel forward into making more money or whatnot and because I had written so much I thought well I mean I can start writing everybody's selling ebooks these days let's make an ebook and see how it sells That was one of the first ebooks I did and then I got a I, my first or second book was actually a book that I wrote for Rockable Press which is like a small indie publisher in Australia and it was called How to Record Great Music with whatever equipment you got. And that just taught me that, okay, there's definitely money in publishing or in self-publishing and content marketing and sharing your knowledge and things of that nature. Basically, as I alluded to earlier, I read Tim Ferriss' book, uh, The 4-Hour Workweek, and I implemented every single thing in the book, and here I am.
1: Interesting. And I, I you know, I've read that book many years ago, and... I read it at a time when I don't think my business acumen was worth a damn. Yeah. I think I need to go back and reread
0: or do the audiobook or whatever. The second version is pretty good, too. I've read it multiple times and also read the new version. We actually met back in 2008. He was on book tour in Spain because he's celebrating the translation of the four-hour Work Week into Spanish. So I was a subscriber of his blog at the time. Still am. And he came to Spain and had this get-together for you know anybody who wanted to come at this bar in the outskirts of, of Madrid. And I went and met him and hung out with him and picked his brain on things. And he just had a little chat. And he went up to every single person in the audience, shook their hand, asked for their name, had a little talk with them. And then he had a talk. And then everybody could just like hang out happy hour style afterwards. And that was before I even had any idea what I wanted to do. You know, that's before audio issues or anything like that.
1: At the time that I joined our Friday morning calls, and if I haven't made that clear, audience, Bjorgman is one of the people that joins Chris Salim, Lid Shaw, Kevin Ward, and sometimes Chris Graham and Brian David Hood in a Friday morning call, in a Zoom call. And when I first joined, I come from a very audio-centric background, and my goal in creating working-class audio was to get better at some of the business things so i could do this better so i could survive so i could find out what other people are doing to survive and so when i got introduced to you and everybody the business thing at first i think i was a little hesitant about a lot of it i was like this is kind of rubbing against my audio sensibilities and it took some time for the business and the audio to kind of become one. And for me to understand, oh, okay, duh, if you want to survive at this, you have to be a little sharper about this. And being the late bloomer that I am, I finally came around to it. And I'm still like digging in and trying to figure it all out and improve the systems. And I, and I really am drawn to what you're doing. There's a lot to learn. And how can audio professionals who I think are notoriously bad at marketing themselves. <laughs> God knows, right. you know, I have, I'm have i no expert. What is it that you've learned that you can pass along to those that are listening that are like running a studio, they're freelance engineers, or they're working in one of the audio disciplines? What can they do to benefit from what you've learned? Tell me about that.
0: Well, I greatly benefited from going to the business college of the University of Arizona because I took the entrepreneurship program, which was at the time ranked number two in higher education in the U.S., which is great. But it teaches you all of the steps that one needs to understand when it comes to being an entrepreneur. And I like to joke that I'm a musicpreneur because I'm an entrepreneur who works in the music industry, right? And I actually, this was in front of me because I was clearing out my drawer early this morning. And it's this thing called the customer canvas. And it's something I developed for me and for my wife, who is the CEO of Startup Tucson, an organization here in town that helps entrepreneurs in early stage businesses. And I mentor for them all the time. Mm-hmm. But it basically breaks down into, you're always trying to solve a problem for somebody when you are an entrepreneur, So your business is to solve other people's problems, right? It's, in my case, my problem is I'm trying to solve the problem of muddy mixes or amateur sound, that sort of thing. Whatever audio professional, whatever niche of audio production you're in, what is the problem that you're trying to solve is the first question you should ask yourself. And then no business is going to survive without customers or clients in some way. So you have to completely understand the customer's point of view, their hopes and dreams and their pains and fears? What are they hoping to achieve by solving that pr- their problem? What are they trying to avoid by solving that problem? And what are the results that you can give them so that they don't have that problem anymore and they feel satisfied having worked with you? That's sort of the basics of entrepreneurship is, you know, you solve a problem, you understand your customer, and you give them a tangible result. And then there's other things that I would want to talk about. Basically, like it all comes down to the customer, understanding the customer, understanding what language the customer uses, understanding how they think, where they are both online and off, how many customer interviews or how can you do to understand your customer better? Because you should also use all that vocabulary in your own sales and marketing materials. Because if you're not using the language that they use to describe their problem, you're not describing their problem for them. They don't understand what you're talking about. You want to be able to use their words so that when you talk about the problem that you think they have, you are explaining the problem in such a clear and concise and good way to the point that you're describing the problem better to them than they could describe it to you. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, they automatically think that you have some sort of solution because you obviously understand everything that's going on. So a lot of it is just human understanding. You just have to understand the other, the people that you're trying to serve.
1: What do you say to those who are in audio that look at this and go, that's not how I get my clients and I have a little more of an organic approach and I go to shows and do that. So... Mm-hmm. What would you say to the to the naysayers of implementing more traditional business strategies and marketing strategies into your world of audio?
0: Well, I mean, what have they got to lose? Yeah, it's true. I mean, it, it if anything, it's just a different system that you have running at that time. So maybe you're spending a lot of time. Maybe you're getting all your clients by going to shows, chatting, chatting up the artists, and and getting maybe word-of-mouth referrals and things of that nature, great, that's that's great that you have that. However, maybe a little bit unreliable because you never necessarily know always where your next client is coming from. Whereas with me, I can project my revenue into the future because I know that if I get a certain amount of traffic, it's going to convert to a certain amount of subscribers, that's going to convert to a certain amount of sales, that's going to m- make an X amount of money. Mm-hmm. And that's security in, in that, that... You can't buy by going to shows. And we were talking about it, I think, recently.
1: You were talking about how you kind of flip the model around. Mm-hmm. Instead of going out and seeking out clients that to have them pay you to mix, you are mixing stuff for free, but how, how are you making money there? Explain that.
0: Yeah, so I've been, like I joked about it with you, I basically run a six-figure business by mixing for free. <laughs> <laughs> and it's because my product is knowledge and education. And by mixing for free, I can create a product by going through the mixes that I do for free, especially if they're great songs. I get to pick pick the songs that I work on, get to pick the projects, and there's a lot of really good music out there. And I have a lot of subscribers, so I always have people sending me stuff. Obviously, it's not all good, but... I get to listen to all this really really great music and some of the, these musicians are just have a mental block where they don't feel comfortable releasing that music because they don't they don't know if it's professional enough but if I mix it for them and they're super happy with it they're eager to release it and that helps me because I get credits for working on s- songs and I get material to create training on that I can then sell for a higher price to more people. I'd rather mix for free and sell a $99 product to 100 people than mix that song for $500. It's just the math doesn't work. <laughs> this the, I'd rather I rather I'd rather sell a product than a service. You love teaching, don't you? Yeah. One of my first jobs was an assistant teacher in fourth grade. I got all the ADHD kids that were disrupting class. So I had to go teach them math in a small group on their own, by themselves. And that teaches you a lot about how, about how to be very concise or very direct. And also, you know, when you're the 20-year-old guy with the tattoos the 8-year-old ADHD kids take you seriously. <laughs> yeah, isn't it funny how that works? <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, so I guess like my bi- like I'm in the audio industry, but I'm basically an education company of some sort. Exactly. It's like McDonald's, right? You've ever heard of that they're not actually in the hamburger industry, they're in the real estate business.
1: I understand that because I grew up with some friends who own a bunch of franchise right. locations for a fast food company. Right. So explain that to the audience.
0: Well, so, so I mean, if you want to know more about this, I would just watch The Founder about Ray Kroc, the movie with Michael Keaton in it. It's so good. It is good. Uh, it's really good. But basically, it seems like when he was trying to create McDonald's, the, the thing that really made made it for them was instead of running the business on top, they would franchise the business, but they owned the land. So they always own the land. The McDonald's corp- Corporation itself owns the land underneath every single McDonald's franchise. And as you know, property is, is a valuable commodity. So that's what makes, makes the millions, the McMillions,
1: if you will. Yeah, and, and I've had this discussion about studios renting versus owning. And really, those that own the buildings... Mm-hmm. are the ones that do the best in the end because the real estate is they're out right? in the end. Like they can run the studio and kind of keep it like, you know, even if they're barely making it, in the end, they can sell the real estate,
0: right? which is bizarre. Yeah, it makes me think about what creative business models can studio owners or people that have all that stuff and all that gear, what can they do? to offer things differently than their competitors or things of that nature. If you're making money off of booking bands every day and you're making records all the time, great. Obviously, it doesn't require a lot of thought other than just trying to make sure that word of mouth spreads and you keep getting clients. I don't have a lot of experience with that sort of business model. however. I would think that if you are struggling and you're maybe not in a hotbed in the music industry, you can offer different things in your location. Because you have a really cool space that you don't necessarily always have to use as a recording studio. You can use it as like a live stream performance venue. You can use it for classes. You can use it for other sorts of artists. Like what other creative artists are there that could benefit from using a music studio? Like the Southern Arizona Arts and Cultural Alliance is a nonprofit here in town, in Tucson. And they created a sort of makerspace slash artist accelerator at the Tucson Mall. So it was an empty storefront in the Tucson Mall because nobody goes to the mall anymore, especially not these days. (laughs) And they turned this giant store into a creative incubator. So there was a commercial kitchen you could learn from. There is a performance venue. There's a hall you can do lectures and bands. There's a, there's a recording studio there, too. My friend Matt Rowland that runs it. There's ISO booths. So there's instruments set up and all these different things that you can do audio production-wise. So is there a secondary audience that isn't being served in your location or in your town that might benefit from going to a studio? And does it make sense to adapt your business model to that?
1: Yeah, because if you're in Nashville, it's going to be a lot easier, potentially, to function as an audio professional because that ecosystem is strong and supports that. Versus Tucson, right? it's going to be less so and you probably know who all the studio owners are in town
0: yeah more or less
1: and therefore the amount of music work if we're speaking music is going to be far less than it would be in nashville
0: right but that's the beauty of the online business model that you could attach to your pre-existing going to gigs back to that question going to gigs and getting word of mouth the beauty of the online business model is that it runs without you if you set the system up correctly if you, if you dedicate yourself to maybe creating content or or running ads, you can also run ads if you have the budget for it. Mm-hmm. And you set up a system of capturing leads and qualifying leads into paying customers through your email sequences and funnels or what have you. And by giving giving that audience that you think you can serve the content that they need so that they know, like, and trust you, maybe they will take the next step and work with you in a different capacity over the internet.
1: Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. Sampley.app. Check it out. What do you think studio owners and and audio professionals, give me two book recommendations that you think they should read that will help benefit their audio business?
0: I would read The 4-Hour Workweek and I would also read Your Move by Ramit Sethi. Your Move. Your Move. I've never heard of it. It's The Underdog's Guide to Online Business. So it's, it's good. I've taken, I've spent probably close to Ten thousand dollars or more on Ramit Sethi's courses, and he's helped me a lot. So <laughs> I definitely recommend buying his nine dollar book.
1: <laughs> and what do you say to the audio person who says,
0: "Well, I'm just the audio. I'm not really a business person." Then find a boss. If you're not, if 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 you're just gonna hope that people come to you and you're not gonna do anything to promote yourself, you're not an entrepreneur or you're an employee. Yeah. So you can fight me all day long about whether or not you need to be entrepreneurial, but I'm still going to keep going on being entrepreneurial and marketing and promoting myself. You should do that too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because if you are a studio
0: owner, even if you're a freelance audio person, you're an entrepreneur. Absolutely. I mean, being a freelancer is great. It's <laughs> Nobody's in control of, of you, your time or anything like that. You get gigs that you can hopefully either reject or accept, and you have almost ultimate control. The next step is being a freelancer slash business owner. And that's basically adding the sort of business component to your existing freelance business. Oh, another really good book actually would be Built to Sell. It's a, hmm. it's like a parable on is this the marketing agency owner that wants to sell his business and he meets a mentor, it's sort of that sort of book, and the mentor tells him what to do in order to sell the business. And throughout the process, you learn a lot about how to productize a service. Because if you're always like X amount, say you're a hundred bucks an hour, you have a huge cap on what you can earn. But if you're productizing a service and making it so that they are buying a product based on the value that that product brings, you can charge way more because then you're not selling hours. You're selling value and impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: There's also, there's, I'm trying to play devil's advocate on a few of these things to get you to give me the answers that I'm hoping for here for my audience. And yeah, one of the things is, is let's say that you're an audio person who is interested in online business in some capacity and wants to create courses a la like Pyramix or Mix of the Masters. Those are always my go-to examples. Yeah. And you might say to yourself, well, there's there's already those guys out there. They're already doing that. I, I can't compete with that. Or, you know, I live in some small town in North Dakota and I can't compete with what Pyramix is doing. So what do you say to those who are intimidated by what already exists?
0: Well, you're comparing yourself to somebody who spent years on building their success. I mean, I don't know who actually owns and strategizes the marketing for PureMix. And I'm assuming that the business model is somehow royalty-based to those high-end engineers. Mm-hmm. But they are not the people make, buy, and making the business run. And they probably didn't come up with the idea of like, hey, how about we all get together and we make these videos? Because they're busy making records, right? So you're comparing yourself to some people that spent years building something and you think that you're, you're obviously intimidated by that, but you're comparing yourself to something that you could achieve 10 years into the future, but you can't compare yourself to somebody that has spent 10 years longer than you building something. I don't know know if this analogy makes sense, but. That's like being afraid to build a house because there's a skyscraper next door. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think that analogy makes sense. So your message there is, is don't be afraid to start something
0: Yeah, you're going to have to start small. Yeah, go to to Wayback Machine and look up audio issues like 10 years ago. It was a piece of of trash. (laughs) Like, I can't believe that people subscribe to my newsletter. (laughs) Yeah. There's this really good quote by Gary Keller in the book, The One Thing. And it's basically, I'm going to paraphrase. I don't memorize quotes that well. And it's basically when you're comparing yourself to professionals that are leagues ahead of you, you're comparing yourself to people that have done things over time. Mm-hmm. And they've done one small thing at a time and that leads to another small thing that sooner or later builds up into something big. So you just have to start with the small thing and then go from there.
1: Now, I've been talking about The existing audio pros who may be at a down point in their career or they're looking to really take something to the next level based on the years of experience that they have.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: What about the newcomer, the new audio professional in the making that we have yet to hear from who is listening to this episode now? What is it that they can do, in your opinion, to have a great audio career and implement some of these concepts that you've learned along the way for you for business?
0: Well, so, let me tell you a story. My first job was in a bakery when I was 13 years old. And one of the bakers was also a rock musician. He played the touring circuit, all these, he played these dances, they played the covers du jour and and all the famous songs that they had played on the radio and, and that sort of thing. And I was picking his brain on like, well, how do you become successful as a musician? or what do you do to get into the music industry? Completely ignoring the fact that he obviously had a day job as a baker as well. (laughs) Uh, So it shows you a little bit about the the small size of the Icelandic industry as well. But at the same time, what he said to me was basically focus on the songs, focus on writing songs. And to audio professionals, the currency or in the music industry, I think the currency is the song. So Whatever that means how do you involve yourself in the creation of good music because that will speak a lot louder than any blog article or, or anything like that that you can write i think that finding if you're if you're a talented multi-instrumentalist songwriter then just start making more songs and start documenting how you make those songs start creating content on on that sort of stuff and create a following that's following you for your songs, but also following you for how you do what you do. And if you're not a multi-instrument, if you're a mixing engineer like me, or an audio edu- educator like me, or just want to be a recording engineer, or mastering engineer, whatever, I would find and search and seek out those people that have songs and how and you'd need to figure out how you can help make that music better and how you can involve yourself in the creation of that music. You might have to start working for free. I never stopped working for free and it's doing pretty well.
1: <laughs> and I always
0: say don't ever work for free, but you're
1: working for free, but you're also, yeah, you're the exception.
0: right. So like you might have to work for free in order to get started, right? Because you have to sort of prove your value first, pay your dues, and then from there, you can you actually can find your value and your worth. But I wouldn't say work for free without any strings attached. Treat every free session as if it was a paid session. That means, what does that include? One day in the studio? Two days in the studio? Does that include one mixed revision or no mixed revisions or five mixed revisions? Treat it as if you were... And this is a great way to set up a great proposal system in a way, too, because... Literally treat the session as if it's paid, but at the end, the invoice is zero. But there's an invoice, there's a contract, there's an understanding, there are managed expectations. Then you have something because it's a mutually beneficial transaction between two people that want something from each other, right? The band or the artist wants something that they can't make sound good. They want it to sound good. You want maybe a portfolio item. And you believe in their music because you think that it'll further your career.
1: Do you ever get pushback or negative comments? And how do you deal with that?
0: All the time. I get a lot of hate. My favorite piece of hate mail was, when Emperor Trump invades Iceland, I hope you get thrown into a concentration camp for your views, you anti-American piece of trash. Wow. (laughs) So so I've built up a thick skin in the last 10 years of online business and, and online trolling, for sure. That's probably one of the reasons it's taken me so long to develop a good YouTube channel. <laughs> but yeah. I deal with them in a few different ways. There is, the, the easiest way is to ignore it. I mean, it's going to hurt, especially if you don't, if you don't have thick skin. Because it's like when you get a negative comment, the, the one negative comment will just like wipe out the 10 previous positive comments. Like, that's just going to happen. It's going to weigh on you much harder and, and and heavier. However, you can delete them. Or in my case, that's deleting the Facebook comment from the ads because they're bitching about something. Or it's just deleting the email that calls me an asshole or calls me calls me curse words <laughs> to my face via email. Because I, I sent them an email because they subscribed to my newsletter that they actively double opted into and basically told me twice that they would like to receive emails from me. And then they're pissed off that I'm emailing them. So <laughs> that seems seems weird to me, but I, I just unsubscribe them and they delete their emails. But then sometimes I'm a little bit cynical and sarcastic. So I have some fun trolling people back. And I do it in a very specific way. I very rarely get into a shouting match based on logic and reason because that's not going to work. Right. <laughs> so, so I tend to just respond with gifs so that I troll them back with whatever humor. GIF that I can find that I think sums up my feelings of, on the matter. And it can be very fun because th- it enrages them. And then they are not only trying to argue back to a point that was made with the GIF, but they are technically also arguing with a cartoon because my brand is all me as a cartoon. <laughs> and basically at that point, I just have a lot of fun with it. And unbeknownst to them is that they keep commenting. The more they keep commenting on my ads, the more free ad exposure I get on Facebook. So when I think that I can get a rise out of a troll by sort of GIF ignoring them, I sometimes tend to do that. But then, you know, when it goes too far, I just end up deleting the whole thread and just leaving it. So people get mostly ignored if they are hating because I don't have time for that. I have other things to do. I have 50,000 subscribers that actually like what I have to say, and I'd rather focus my time and energy on positive people Mm -hmm. than the negative trolls on the internet. It's just, there's not enough time for that. So I'm on
1: audio issues right now, and like, for example, one of the posts is how to create separation between piano and bass with multi-band compression. Mm -hmm. Where do you go for... I assume you continue to educate yourself from an audio perspective and what inspires you audio wise. I mean, obviously you're mixing some stuff for some of your online community that you work Mm -hmm. with, but where do you go to number one for inspiration on audio? And number two, how do you stay on top of new ideas and new techniques of doing things?
0: So I educate myself by reading a lot of books. Obviously, I've read all the great thought leaders that were, are in the music industry, too. Like I have read both the behind the glass books, behind the boards, the, the Bobby Ozinski's stuff, all of those great writers. There's obviously practicing with songs, which kind of leads to you can read all this stuff. And then if you don't implement it with practice, you're going to forget it. But if you're continuously educating yourself through practice, those techniques sort of solidify in your brain faster and and more firmly than if you're just reading for edu- for fun Be- mm-hmm. because you you kind of have to you have to do both it's not enough to just learn you also have to do and through continuous practice you get continuous improvement i also have a masterclass subscription where i get a lot of good ideas for thought leadership in general like how other industry professionals across industries get their ideas and think about things. Because I think one of the most important things when you are educating yourself and when you're learning from other people, it's not necessarily the topic or the subject at hand that is the most important part, but learning from the cream of the crop the high end high end industry people is learning how they think about things because if you can change your mindset in a way so that it is closer to the mindset of a successful person i think that it helps you think more clearly and have a stronger vision towards things and things like that i also have a mix with the master subscription i learned a lot from those guys i just finished watching Jason Joshua's uh, Rosalia mixed walkthrough, which was very enlightening. A lot of tricks that you learn from that that I wouldn't necessarily always use, but it's interesting again to learn how he thinks about things. Yeah,
1: very interesting.
0: Yeah, I have a full library both on my bookshelf and in my Kindle of both music production and also just music history, sort of production history. The biography of Jeff, Jeff Emmerich's biography of recording The Beatles is super enlightening when it comes to not necessarily modern mixing techniques, of course, but how he thought about things and how he troubleshot things with limited equipment and things of that nature.
1: Do you ever feel the temptation to want to open a studio?
0: Yeah. I would love to have a bigger facility. I would love to have a control room and a live room. But... I wouldn't necessarily run it as a standard recording studio because I would probably spend half my time creating courses in there. I would probably have events. I would probably have a yearly weekend event where people would come from out of town to learn how to record a band, things like that. Having a bigger facility also means that you can set up better production equipment, better lighting, better video equipment. You have room for a teleprompter and lighting kits and a crew if you wanted, and a band. I can fit a band in here, but it's very tight. Yeah, because you're working out of your home. Yeah, yeah. This is basically a
1: converted garage. So if you had a studio, you would turn it into a content
0: creation audio hub. Right. Yeah, basically. I would treat it as a community place rather than just a recording studio. I would probably have a business model that had some form of membership. You can come in and work an X amount of hours for an X amount per month because a recurring revenue model is way better than a one-off, when are they coming back? sort of situation. Mm, Uh, Interesting. I guess going back to, we've been talking a lot about like, how can people that are not necessarily hip to the new way of marketing or online business or whatever. But I think that you can learn a lot from different industries and different business models. So if somebody really wants to get inspiration for ideas of how they could maybe transform something that they already have, because if you already have a studio, And you already have the knowledge, you already have the gear, you have so many assets. And if it's not necessarily working exactly as you want it to at the moment, maybe just pick up a a book on business models and see if that gives you some inspiration for doing things slightly differently. Coming up with creative solutions to your current problems and thinking in a different way than maybe the rest of your industry. Completely not related, but, but fascinating to me nonetheless. You recently became a U.S. citizen. I did, yes. I became American on January eleventh of this year. I like to joke now to my friends that the last good party they went to was my citizenship party because now nobody has parties anymore. I know. <laughs> so I mean that took that took a while. I've been in the US for ten years, green card holder since twenty thirteen or so, and Then you have to be here for, you have to fulfill some requirements until you can apply. So then I applied, went through the naturalization process, took the citizenship test, went to the courthouse and took the oath. Then we just had a giant party after that. I wore a Captain America suit and I promised my friend Carol, who's an appellate attorney, not a hairdresser, that when I became a U.S. citizen, she could cut my hair as a mullet. (laughs) So we did that at the party. I rocked a mullet for a week or so before I <laughs> before I got it, <laughs> it groomed. So for the
1: audience, would you say the the number one link to share here would be audioissues.com?
0: Yeah, audioissues.com, if you want to reverse engineer the business model, that's a good place to to check. But I do have some marketing content and things of that nature too. The customer canvas I was talking about earlier that goes through sort of how I like to research my clients and my customers so that I can understand my audience better. You can find that at customercanvas.net. Okay, we'll I'll include a link for that. Yeah, and then and that kind of just links to my sort of email marketing slash content marketing coaching a uh, portfolio site, which is mm. just bbenediction.com. I do limited amount of mentorship in that sort of way, mostly just for organizations here in town. But I'm always up for seeing if I can help anybody else. Björgman, thank
1: you so much for taking the time to uh, chat with me. It was great to learn a little bit more about somebody who I talk to every single week. (laughs)
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
1: And yet there's still more to learn, you know. So uh, I really appreciate it, man. Thanks for coming on.
0: Yeah, thank you.
1: All right, take care. Bjorg van Benediksen here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to thank Anne-Marie Plo for the editing, Cliff Truesdale for the Working Class Audio theme music, and Chuck Smith for his amazing voice. also want to remind you to stop on by workingclassaudio.com, spread the word on social media, tell all your friends, and until next time, take care.